Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 121 of History of the Marine Corps the eighth and final episode in our Guadalcanal and Tulagi series. The U.S. Army's arrival brought reinforcements and a reorganization of American troops. New tactics and weapons, like flamethrowers and enhanced naval gunfire, were introduced, though terrain and enemy fortifications remained a problem. The 1st Marine Division, weakened by malaria and extended combat, was finally relieved and sent to Australia for some much-needed rest. We end the episode by touching on how Guadalcanal advanced amphibious warfare doctrines and improved coordination between military branches. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Over the past seven episodes, we've discussed the numerous challenges Marines faced during the Battle of Guadalcanal, including inadequate support and supplies, rugged jungle and terrain, complex navigation, and confronting a tenacious enemy force. The Marines fought hard, and they fought well. December 9th marked a significant milestone in Guadalcanal. Major General Alexander M. Patch, leading the Americal Division, took command from General Vandergrift. This wasn't just a change in leadership. It also meant a major strategic pivot for the American forces on the island. The same day also saw the crucial transition for the 1st Marine Division. They were beyond exhausted from prolonged combat and suffered from a staggering 75% infection rate of malaria. Vandergrift had been pushing for relief since his October meeting with Admiral Halsey due to the intense conditions the Marines had endured. That day had finally arrived. The 1st Marine Division's mission in Australia focused on rehabilitation, additional training, and a much-needed break. The 5th Marines were the first to board and sail. The 7th followed closely after. The casualty rate for the 1st Marines alone, not counting the Raiders, Paramarines, or other units, were 605 killed in action, 45 died of wounds, 31 were missing and presumed dead, and 1,278 were wounded. The casualty rate due to malaria or other tropical diseases was more than 8,500, over four times more than casualties due to combat. In the days leading up to their relief, Marines were examined to assess the physical condition of the division. 
the doctors concluded that 34% of the unit were unfit for any combat-related duty. This assessment was conducted after the regiment received an additional 400 troops. General Patch brought in the 132nd Regimental Combat Team, bringing up the total U.S. Army strength on the island to 13,169. The existing 164th Infantry and the 182nd were in slightly better fighting shape than the 1st Marines, but not by much. They were down 860 soldiers. The 2nd Marines, minus the 3rd Battalion, relieved the 164th and 182nd near Point Cruz, while the 8th Marines relieved the 132nd. The configuration of forces placed the 8th Marines in a critical position, with three battalions deployed in line. The 3rd Battalion held a position along the narrow coastal plain, directly in contact with the 2nd Battalion, which extended its line southward for a thousand yards across rugged terrain, following the ridge lines of the hilly landscape. The 2nd connected with the 1st Battalion. Ten days after the 1st Marine Division left, the 132nd received orders to take Hill 27, a small elevation southwest of Mount Austin that Japan used as a key position on their right flank. The position was heavily fortified, with Japanese troops entrenched in dense jungle. This made it challenging for the 3rd Battalion of the 132nd to reach their objective. Here, they met heavy resistance and suffered casualties, including Lieutenant Colonel Wright being killed in action. The inexperienced troops, coupled with the strong enemy force, caused the mission to be postponed. They tried again eight days later. The 3rd Battalion attack was led by artillery and an airstrike, but they still suffered heavy casualties. They were pulled back again, and the 3rd Battalion was used for another offensive that cleared out Japanese troops from the south and west sectors of the coast. A third attempt to take Hill 27 was ordered on the 30th, with the 2nd Battalion helping. By late afternoon, the hill was finally taken. On January 2nd, all ground forces on the island were consolidated into the 14th Corps under Patch. The beginning of January also saw additional troops on the island. Most of them were Army, but the 2nd Marine Division, consisting of the 6th Marines and Division Headquarters, showed up to help. The headquarters established their command post roughly 800 yards east of the Matanakal River's mouth, along the beach. This location was north of the ridges where earlier actions, such as Connolly's engagement late in October, had taken place. They were organized into the Composite Army Marine Division, also known as the CAM Division. The CAM Division was an ad hoc military unit formed during the Guadalcanal Campaign of World War II. It combined elements of the United States Army and the Marine Corps to strengthen American forces in the Pacific Theater, particularly on Guadalcanal, where intense fighting against Japanese forces was ongoing. This integration was designed to make the most of the manpower and resources in a harsh combat situation. But the integration of Army and Marine Corps units led to challenges due to differences in training, tactics, command structures, and equipment. These differences often resulted in operational inefficiencies and coordination difficulties. The harsh jungle conditions of Guadalcanal, logistical challenges, 
and intense combat against well-entrenched Japanese forces made these problems worse. On January 6th, there were 16,351 Marines on Guadalcanal and 2,032 on Tulagi. The 6th Marines began to relieve the 2nd, quote, not earlier than 30 minutes before sunset on January 14th, unquote. 1-6 relieved 1-2 and 2-2. 2-6 provided a reinforced rifle company to relieve Alpha and Bravo companies of the 8th Marines. And 3-6 remained in bivouac. The following day, the 2nd Marines boarded ships and headed towards New Zealand. They departed six months to the day from when they landed. The 8th Marines were relieved on the 17th. In early January, as the last push up the coast started, the 14th Corps' headquarters set up a solid outpost on the island's south shore. This prevented the enemy from escaping from the target zones past the Poha River. The final stages of the campaign on Guadalcanal were influenced by two key factors. First, the Allies had amassed enough troops on the island to launch a continuous offensive toward the west. This strategy involved constant forward movement pausing only at night, and was facilitated by the presence of more than two entire divisions, which made enveloping movements feasible. Second, signs such as numerous dugouts and small emplacements indicated that instead of preparing for counteroffensives, the Japanese were fortifying their positions in the rugged terrain west of Matanikau. Later information revealed that the Japanese were actually withdrawing troops from the island. During this period, it was unknown that the enemy was in the withdrawal process. All plans were based on the assumption that the Japanese were still present in strength, capable of counterattacks, and had determined resistance. This misconception persisted until late in the campaign. Japan had skillfully hidden their withdrawal efforts. They used fast destroyer convoys, ranging from 16 to 20 ships per group, to evacuate troops from the Northern Solomons to Cape Esperance on Guadalcanal, despite facing air attacks, torpedo boat assaults, and mines, they made several successful trips, maintaining the illusion of reinforcement. In January, it was estimated that around 3,000 enemy troops were still on the island. The 14th Corps, under General Patch, came up with a strategy to push west and remove Japanese troops who were concentrated in the Mount Austin area. Patch extended the American line from Point Cruz to Hill 66. The 25th Division, led by General Collins, advanced west towards the Gifu Pocket. Meanwhile, the 2nd Marine Division provided the right flank of the 14th Corps line, which extended from the 25th Division's north flank to the beach. The offensive commenced with the 25th Division, specifically the 35th Infantry, advancing west. The terrain posed significant challenges, particularly in the Galloping Horse area, a complex of hills that looked like a galloping horse. The Army began their attack on the 10th. Three days later, the Marines joined in. The Marines faced terrain features where valleys were segmented by ridges or other natural barriers, creating distinct compartments. Japan set up powerful defensive positions in these sections. 
The compartmentalized nature of the feature made it difficult to navigate. It provided multiple hidden areas for Japanese troops to hide. The multiple sections also make advancing troops vulnerable to crossfire, and the ridges and barriers obstruct the line of sight and complicate communication, making it difficult for the attacking force to assess the situation and coordinate their actions. This significantly slowed the Marines' progress. They were able to advance 1,000 yards on the inland flank by the end of the day. The 6th Marines were sent in to relieve the exhausted 2nd. It was their turn to leave the island, and they headed towards New Zealand on the 15th. With the 2nd Marines gone, lines were adjusted, and the 8th were now on the left while the 6th manned the coast. Before heading into battle, the 8th preceded their attack with support from four destroyers. But this revealed shortcomings in the practice of coordinating naval gunfire support. Lessons learned from this resulted in the Joint Assault Signal Company, a unit responsible for coordinating naval gunfire and air support for ground troops. It also led to shorefire control parties, or naval gunfire teams. Marines and naval forces adapted by training in naval gunfire principles. Each artillery battalion had two naval officers, who trained forward observers. Marine artillery officers also boarded naval ships to guide commanders and gunnery officers. This development led to the establishment of effective naval gunfire practices, which were beneficial in later Pacific assaults. Flamethrowers also appeared for the first time on Guadalcanal, marking their first use by Marines during World War II. This technology helped the 8th make considerable progress, effectively neutralizing three Japanese emplacements. In two days, with the support of tanks, the 8th aligned with the 6th. Four days later, Marines had managed to advance 1,500 yards, kill over 600 Japanese soldiers, and capture two prisoners. The 35th Infantry battled through rugged terrain to take their objective and remove Colonel Oka's defense from the pocket. By the end of these operations, American forces had positioned themselves to advance to the west. Patch's strategy to encircle the Japanese at Kokombona involved deploying a company of the 147th Infantry, via LCTs, to Beaufort Bay, on the island's southwest coast. This force was to block mountain passes and prevent a Japanese retreat south. With the 147th in position, the 14th Corps initiated an attack to envelop the enemy's south flank and advance along the coast. The 25th Division's flanking movement captured Hills 90 and 98. The following day, the CAM Division launched their attack with the 6th Marines on the right, 147th in the middle, and 182nd Infantry on the left. The Marines faced the strongest opposition compared to other U.S. forces and were stopped on the first day by a force of 200 in a ravine. Naval, air, and artillery were called in to clear the position, and by noon on the 24th, Marines successfully cleared the ravine and connected with the 25th Division. With dwindling reinforcements and facing setbacks in other regions, the Japanese began strategically withdrawing from Guadalcanal. They also started to build a more robust defense force further north in the Solomon Chain. 
intelligence reports began to describe a buildup of enemy ships at Rabaul. Allied command assumed that these ships were preparing for another attack on Guadalcanal, since this has been the case before. Now that U.S. forces were larger than when Vandergriff was on the island, Patch was able to pull the 25th Division back to the perimeter while the CAM Division continued to hunt down enemy troops. Information provided by a captured Japanese soldier corroborated the intelligence report as well. On the 25th, a soldier in an engineering company was captured, fed, and questioned. He revealed that there was to be daylight air raids on the perimeter. U.S. planes were sent up and waited for the enemy to arrive. Seven bombers and 40 fighters appeared, and U.S. planes fought them off, resulting in very little damage to U.S. troops. Although the intelligence about Rabaul was accurate, the assumed intentions of Japan were wrong, and the ships were there to help evacuate troops on the island. As the CAM division launched their attack on the 26th, they were met with very little opposition, as most troops had pulled back. The first day saw a thousand-yard gain, while the second doubled that. On the 29th, Patch called the 182nd back to the perimeter and ordered the 147th to continue the pursuit. The 6th Marines covered the rear of the regiment. By February 8th, the evacuation of Japanese forces on the island was complete. General Patch sent Admiral Halsey a message announcing, quote, total and complete defeat of Japanese forces on Guadalcanal, unquote. I like Halsey's response to General Patch. It has a touch of a dad joke to it, which I appreciate. Quote, when I sent a Patch to act as a tailor for Guadalcanal, I did not expect him to remove the enemy's pants and sew it on so quickly. Thanks and congratulations. Unquote. Marine historian Major John L. Zimmerman likened the Battle of Guadalcanal to the Thermopylae of the Pacific, which is an appropriate metaphor for the struggle. Just as Thermopylae was crucial for the Greeks in defending against the Persians, Guadalcanal was pivotal in the Pacific War. Its capture was strategically significant for controlling the region. The Greek stand at Thermopylae is famous for demonstrating courage and tactical skill against a much larger Persian army. Similarly, at Guadalcanal, Allied forces faced formidable Japanese troops in a challenging environment but managed to hold their ground. Despite being a tactical defeat for the Greeks, Thermopylae became a symbol of resistance and a turning point in the Greco-Persian Wars. Guadalcanal also marked a significant turning point in the Pacific, as it was the first major offensive by Allied forces against the Japanese Empire. This battle shifted the momentum of the conflict. About 1,000 enemy troops were taken prisoner, and more than 600 enemy planes and pilots were destroyed. In addition, seven of the 11 Japanese transports carrying two reinforced divisions were sunk while attempting to support the island, costing the lives of numerous enemy troops. Within the ground forces, Marine and Army casualties totaled 1,598 killed and 4,709 wounded. Of these, 1,152 Marines were killed or died from wounds. 2,800 were injured, and 55 were missing. 
in marine aviation, there were 55 fatalities, 127 wounded, and 85 missing, and presumed dead. General Vandergrift summed up the campaign, quote, We struck at Guadalcanal to halt the advance of the Japanese. We did not know how strong he was, nor did we know his plans. We knew only that he was moving down the island chain and that he had to be stopped. We were as well trained and as well armed as time and our peacetime experience allowed us to be. We needed combat to tell us how effective our training, our doctrines, and our weapons had been. We tested them against the enemy, and we found that they worked. From that moment in 1942, the tide turned, and the Japanese never again advanced. Unquote. In hindsight, Japan's leadership reflected on the campaign and reported their thoughts on why Japan failed. The Supreme Naval Advisor to the Emperor, which I admit is a pretty impressive title, was questioned about what he saw as the pivotal moment when Japan shifted from offense to defense and the factors that led to this change. He stated, quote, I look upon the Guadalcanal and Tulagi operations as the turning point from offense to defense, and the cause of our setback there was our inability to increase our forces at the same speed as you did, unquote. Captain Ohm, who we covered earlier in the series, shared his thoughts as well. Quote, when the war started, it was not planned to take the Solomons. However, the early actions were so easy that it was decided to increase the perimeter defense line and to gain a position which would control American traffic to Australia. Expansion into the Solomons from Rabaul was then carried out. Unfortunately, we also carried out the expansion at the same time, instead of consolidating our holdings in that area. After you captured Guadalcanal, we still thought that we would be able to retake it and use it as an outpost for the defense of the empire. This effort was very costly, both at the time and in later operations, because we were never able to recover from the ship and pilot losses received in the area. He goes on to say, after Guadalcanal in the latter part of 1942, I felt we could not win. Unquote. Admiral Tanaka chimed in as well. Quote, Operations to reinforce Guadalcanal extended over a period of more than five months. They amounted to a losing war of attrition in which Japan suffered heavily in and around the island. There is no question that Japan's doom was sealed with the closing of the struggle for Guadalcanal. Just as it betokened the military character and strength of her opponent, so it presaged Japan's weakness and lack of planning that would spell her defeat. Unquote. Marine amphibious doctrine proved to be effective on Guadalcanal and was fine-tuned throughout the Pacific campaign. The polishing of this doctrine led to the advancement of new technology, such as landing craft, which went into mass production to fulfill the needs of Marines and reduce the likelihood of logistical problems faced during the start of the battle. Air and naval support was also tinkered with, allowing for more accurate and closer fire support. New tools and weapons, like the flamethrower, would increase the efficiency of Marines moving through the Pacific. It was also realized that building a new airfield was faster 
and less expensive than capturing and improving one. These lessons learned allowed Allied forces to land on an enemy island and build an airfield far away from enemy lines. Vandergriff's efforts to change the amphibious doctrine at the beginning of the battle deserves recognition. He changed the standard naval doctrine of who would command amphibious operations. Vandergriff's theory that ground operations should report to the commander on the ground and that the commander should be at the same level as the naval counterpart was eventually adopted. Vandergriff went on to command the 1st Marine Amphibious Corps in the fall of 1943. On the Marine Corps birthday of the same year, he left the Pacific Theater and became the 18th Commandant of the Marine Corps. The exact number of enemy casualties during the campaign remains unknown due to Japan's demoralization, disorganization, and destruction of records. However, American forces inflicted significantly more casualties than they suffered themselves. The estimated number of troops evacuated varies, but it was most likely around 7,000. An estimate of forces on Guadalcanal was 37,680, which left over 28,500 Japanese losses on the island. Marine casualties were significantly lower in comparison. 34 Marine aviators qualified as aces during their tour of duty on Guadalcanal. Joseph Foss led the record by shooting down 26 enemy planes. During their rest and recovery in Australia, the officers of the 1st Marine Division's intelligence section designed a unique and humorous medal to recognize their adversity. The medal featured a Latin slogan that translated into, Let George Do It. This was in reference to George Company of the 1st Marine Division, and it reflected their unofficial model, which was adopted due to frequently being assigned burdensome tasks. The front depicted a U.S. Navy Admiral's hand, dropping a hot potato to a Marine, symbolizing Rear Admiral Fletcher's actions at Guadalcanal, who Marines felt had abandoned them and transferred the problem of Guadalcanal to the 1st Marine Division. A cactus is also shown on the front of the medal, representing the island itself. The reverse showed a cow's rear and a fan, humorously signifying shit hitting the fan. Initially, 100 medals were made by a jeweler in Melbourne, with a large laundry pin to add humor. This thing is ridiculously big. The medal's popularity led to a second order of 400 more, but the original mold broke making the exact number of original medals unknown. Later, a new mold was created and more medals were distributed to veterans of the 1st Marine Division. The division's lithographic branch also produced comical certificates to accompany the medals. This novelty award, born out of dark humor and the shared hardships of combat, became a cherished symbol among the division's members. They would be back in future operations in the Pacific. Without Japanese forces on the island, Guadalcanal quickly became a busy hub with massive stockpiles of supplies and thousands of troops training for future operations. It was time for the Marines to move north. Brigadier General DeWitt Peck, the war plans officer for the commander of the South Pacific area, with support from Admiral Halsey's staff, developed the Operation Toenails plan for invading the central Solomon Islands. 
In early January, Halsey sent Peck to Washington, D.C. to present this strategy to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. However, Peck's request for additional forces to attack key Japanese positions in New Georgia was not granted. The South Pacific staff officers proposed implementing the Toenails Plan in March, targeting an April 1st start. MacArthur's delegates agreed to strike New Georgia, but they objected to the April 1st date, citing insufficient preparation time for Southwest Pacific forces. This issue was escalated to the Joint Chiefs for resolution. The Joint Chiefs' directive on March 28th resolved the matter by authorizing MacArthur to set the operation date. Halsey packed his bags and traveled to MacArthur's headquarters in April. He spoke to him directly. They worked out the details there, and MacArthur approved the plan to invade New Georgia. The date was set for May 15th to coincide with a plan attack in New Guinea. To summarize the episode, a significant shift occurred on December 9th, with Major General Patch taking command in Guadalcanal, signaling a change in leadership and a strategic reorientation of the troops. The 1st Marine Division, suffering from a high incidence of malaria and prolonged combat fatigue, began their relief and rehabilitation in Australia, starting with the 5th and 7th Marines. Casualties were substantial, with the 1st Marines enduring heavy losses and a high rate of disease-related casualties. Reinforcements and regrouping came with General Patch's arrival, leading to the realignment and reorganization of American forces. New tactical approaches were adopted, including flamethrowers and improved naval gunfire coordination, though challenges persisted due to the terrain and fortified enemy positions. Critical operations included the taking of Hill 27 and the consolidation of forces under the 14th Corps, bolstered by the arrival of the 2nd Marine Division. Japanese troops began a strategic withdrawal as the campaign progressed, prompting a shift in Allied tactics and objectives. The Allied casualties, though significant, were lower compared to the heavy losses suffered by the Japanese. The Guadalcanal campaign led to amphibious warfare doctrine, technology advancements, and improved coordination between different military branches. In the aftermath, Guadalcanal transformed into a strategic base for future operations. The development of Operation Toenails for the Central Solomon Islands was a key outcome, with MacArthur assigned to determine the start date of the operation. It also set the stage for the Allied push up the Solomon Island chain. Thanks for listening. This week's audiobook is Neptune's Inferno by James D. Hornfisher. Neptune's Inferno is a detailed account of the naval battles during the Guadalcanal campaign in World War II, focusing on the intense and strategic engagements between the United States and Japanese navies. Throughout our series, I touched on some of the naval battles of Guadalcanal, but there is a lot more to the story. The synergy between naval and marine forces is why we were successful in Guadalcanal and the Navy fought valiantly in nearby waters. This book highlights the crucial role of naval powers in the campaign. It provides an in-depth analysis of critical battles, and it illustrates the challenges faced by both sides, including logistical difficulties, harsh environmental conditions, 
and the learning curve in naval warfare. The book also dives into the leadership, decision-making processes, and personal experience of the sailors and commanders involved. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.